Hi, this is Max James, and you're listening to Awakened Nation. A huge shift is taking place on planet Earth. People seem to be waking up. Tired of the way things used to be, they are creating something brand new and changing the world we live in. My name is Brad Zalas, and I get to sit down with the next generation of idea makers, the disruptors, and the game changers. Everyday people, just like you and me, from all over, who are doing amazing things. Welcome to Awakened Nation. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, I got a good friend of mine on the show today. Uh, We started working together probably about a year and a half, two years ago, and uh, we've grown into a friendship, and I just admire his stories, and I got to have him on the show today. Uh, He's a Vietnam vet, tough as nails guy with a great sense of humor, and uh, how's your golf game, Max? I I don't know. It's been a little chilly here in Las Vegas. <laughs> we have Max James on the show today, ladies and gentlemen. Um, you know, uh, before I read your bio, uh, it's funny, you know, how we met. I have to give a shout out uh, to your wife, Linda Johansson James, uh, for finally introducing us. And uh, you invited me up to the country club and I had heard that you were a tough guy. And uh, I get up there and I'm like, okay. And uh, it was supposed to be an hour meeting and it turned into four hours of just the best stories, Max. So I want to thank you. Oh, we had a lot of fun that day. And again, I've apologized and I'll continue to apologize for being grossly, overly verbose. Okay. (laughs) Well, good. We're going to get started, folks. Uh, I'm going to read Max's bio and I'm I'm just going to tell you this uh as we go through if you've ever been to the mall and you've seen those carts uh not the ones where the people attack you in the mall and try to (laughs) force you to sell but if you've ever been on proactive or you've walked through the mall and you see those carts all over the place that that sell like your wife says zit cream uh those were max's okay max and linda uh james and here i'm going to read your bio max max james is an american author and serial entrepreneur, best known as the founder and owner of the American Kiosk Management Corporation, a global frontline retail company with over 400 staff locations, 1,800 employees, and 800 automated stores throughout North America, Australia, and New Zealand, which achieved $1.8 billion in sales. Boom. Max grew up on a farm, the son of a sharecropper. We're going to talk a little bit about that volunteered for Vietnam as a rescue pilot, shot down twice and lived to tell about it. He earned an MBA from Stanford University and through trial and error, built dozens of companies from the ground up. He is also the author of the international award-winning book, The Harder I Fall, The Higher I Bounce. I have a copy right here, folks. It is a fantastic book. Please pick it up. He's a, it's a business memoir for today's entrepreneur and business executives that packs Max's 60 years of experience of failure, success, and humorous turns into 294 pages of empowering business advice. Max is a United States Air Force Academy graduate and the recipient of the United States Air Force Academy's Distinguished Graduate Award. Max lives in Las Vegas with his wife, Linda Johansson James. And uh, Max, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you very much. I wonder who that guy is you were talking about. It didn't uh, sound like me. <laughs> you, you've you earned the accolades, my brother. Uh, no, thank you, sir. What thank it, you. I love what uh, Fortune Magazine called you. They called you the king of kiosks. And uh, 
let's uh let's go back in time because you didn't just get there overnight uh let's go back to the farm uh much like you and i grew up in a farming community you worked on the farm the son of a sharecropper and one of the best parts of the beginning of your book that i loved is this you told me personally your your father didn't show a lot of affection but when your mother died he quit the farm and talk about that because that is the ultimate sacrifice that your dad did. Yeah. At, uh, maybe I was a little different because I don't think I really appreciated as a young kid prior teenage years, just mm-hmm. how much the family meant and just how much they were doing for, for me. Um, I got to go to school in town. I didn't go to a country school. And so I saw the other half or the better half financially. I mean, just financially. And there were some of the things as a little kid that uh, my friends at school were getting to do that I wasn't able to do. And uh, so there's probably, like a lot of people, maybe a little resentment. But Mm -hmm. as I grew a little older, I began to realize how much both my mom and my dad uh, were sacrificing for me. Uh, Dad always said, we want you to have a better life than we have. And that seemed to be a principal objective of of them and and their lives at that time. My mother, unfortunately, was stricken with a a brain tumor, which uh, the care for that lasted uh, several years, uh, quite honestly. And I don't know how my dad did it, but somehow or another, he continued to operate the farm and take care of my mom, driving often from our little town to Memphis, which was about 70 miles away, much on gravel road, and then coming back and taking care of me. And I learned something about family support there because uh, friends and family that lived in that community often showed up to help me. They often Mm. showed up to help my dad. So I got a sense of teamwork, I think, back there on the farm. But Dad was unbelievable. And when my mom passed, and I like to paint this story of just what a sacrifice he made, if I if I might, Brad. Sure. Um, so picture this. We lived in a white house, clapboard house. It was up on a little hill. And by the time my mom died, I was 13. Uh, we Dad had accumulated some acreage, and he could sit on the front porch in a swing, looking out over the farm. And it gave him great satisfaction. And one of the things I remember so much about dad's contentment uh, being a farmer, he used to say, hmm, wonder what the poor folk are doing. Well, there weren't many folk much less poor than we were, but dad had accumulated. Okay, so here's the the scene, Brett. Dad is sitting now on that front porch in the swing and just inside the door, is his deceased wife in a coffin. And dad's looking out over that farm. And he makes the decision that we can't stay on the farm because I've got to go to school. And there are things that I have been able to do in school that he's proud of and he wants me to continue. So we left that White House on the little hill and we moved into town into an attic. Uh, of a elderly lady. She rented it to us and uh, we slept together. There was no closet. We had an iron rod um, mobile that uh, we mm-hmm. used for our clothes. Dad would go downstairs every morning, uh, fix me a little breakfast, 
we had a iron stove and iron uh, appliances uh, and a little sitting room that would accommodate two or three people. So that was so that I could go to school in town so that I could keep playing basketball and being in the band and all of those things that one gets involved in. So when I look at the sacrifices that my father made, uh, giving up his normal farm life, after he got me off to school, he'd get in our beat up old pickup truck and he'd drive back out to the farm late, of course, from what he was used to getting started, work all day and he'd show up at night. But I could walk back and forth to school from this attic that we lived in. So that was the sacrifice. That was the example that my dad gave to me. And, and I have a pillow sitting over there in a chair here in my uh, office. It says, the greatest gift I ever had came from God. I called him dad. Wow. I love that. Um, you and I have a lot in common because I know um, Damon John uh, talks about his mother being instrumental in, in his success. And sure. I have to say it was my father as well. And when you tell me these stories, I'm just, you know, it touches my heart because my dad uh, would do things like that. And you're right. When we're kids, we just don't really make that association. You know, you and I, uh, you being much older than me, we grew up oh, in a very, a very whoa, whoa, sorry, whoa, whoa, whoa. What, sorry. Right, much older. Come on, <laughs> okay. Not much older. Um, <laughs> you and I, okay. So let's say we're in the same generation. Um, uh, what happened is it was a different era. You know, you, you, you knew there were rich kids, but that wasn't the focus. Like when I was growing up, we didn't, we didn't think about rich and poor. We were just out to play, have a good time. Yeah. And you don't really see that your parents are doing all these things kind of behind your back to support you. You know, my father right. drove me every single day to school when we moved out to the country wow. until I got a car. And he insisted I got a car because <laughs> he was tired <laughs> of driving me. But it, uh, to band practice, he carted my drums around. And I, I look back on this now and I'm just like, whoa, you know, I was really not aware of the support I was getting. And uh, you brought that out. It, it definitely was a different era. It was indeed. And uh, my dad's efforts and sacrifices uh, paid off for him, uh, he says, and for me. And when my dad was passing and I was holding his hand as he passed, he asked me to lean down so I could hear him speak because he had trouble speaking. Right. And he said, uh, son, uh, I'm proud of you. And uh, I'm going to pass this afternoon. And he uh -huh. did. So his part of his last thoughts, I'm delighted that he felt he had succeeded uh, in helping me become a success. Yeah. Yeah. My father passed with me holding his hand too. Um, yeah, it's rough, but it, you know, it, it gives us character. Um, you know, I used to, I used to tease my father that, you know, you were a little bit hard on me and he goes, yeah, but it built character in you. <laughs> and he goes, you owe me money. Cause I tell these stories on stage with the stuff he did. I said, I owe you nothing. <laughs> we, tease him. we had a good laugh. Let's yeah. switch gears to Vietnam. Now you volunteered to go uh, to Vietnam and you became a pilot. Uh, let's talk about that. Cause you, you started off with fixed wing and then you went to helicopter. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it, that is right. Um, depending on your attitude, I guess, uh, about the military, <laughs> uh, 
our timing, my class at the academy graduated in 1964, and we uh, graduated, went to pilot training, and went to war. So yeah. the timing was either good or bad. But uh, there was an opportunity to volunteer to go over in air rescue. And rescue, uh, when pilots got shot down, uh, particularly in North Vietnam and some in Laos, our job as rescue pilots uh, was to go pluck them out of the jungle and bring them home to their family and their friends. And so it was the greatest mission that I could think of in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and the motto of the air rescue is that others may live. And as you've heard many times, we leave no one behind. Right. And so that sounded like a great mission uh, to me. And so I, I did. I volunteered and, and went over and and uh, there was no war in Laos at the time, right. officially. Um, but uh, that's where we were. And when we were on the ground in Laos, we weren't allowed to wear insignia, rank oh, or, yeah. or anything. So we were basically, I guess, unofficially classified as Air America and CIA when we were there. The reason we were in Laos is because when the fighters and bombers went into North Vietnam, we obviously couldn't have launched from Thailand or South Vietnam or from wherever they were and kept up with them. Right. So we were pre-positioned uh, close to the border in North Vietnam and Laos. And when they took off, uh, we took off and we joined up with them at the border. And so when they went in, we went in with them behind them. So that when they got shot down, we'd try to pull them out of the pull them out of the jungle. Wow! Now you guys had a nickname, Jolly Green Giants. Is that correct? And Jolly Green, you, you, you yeah. were like that. You were like this giant green hand that would come out of the sky and pick them up. Yeah, uh, that's that's a good analogy. Yep, that's uh, yeah. Jolly Greens, and and it was the most decorated organization of all in the Vietnam War. Yeah, I, I want to thank you for your service. And I don't mean that, you know, as a because everybody does it. But my uh, great uncles uh, served uh, one at the Battle of Midway and uh, oh. the in World War Two and another mm -hmm. uh, loaded the Enola Gay before it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, well, you know, we know the flight. But anyways, uh, so I, I've always been a supporter of the military. Um, so thank you. I want to. Well, uh, honestly, it. Uh, and I appreciate that and thank you, but uh, it was an honor. It was an yeah. honor to do what your country was asking you to do. Yeah. Especially rescue pilot, because that's a particular type of pilot that, um, you know, we've seen the movies. Okay. You know, pl from platoon to, you know, what, um, saving private, well, they didn't have helicopters yet and saving private Ryan, but, um, we've seen the rescue and the look on the, on the, uh, the troops faces when they're lifted out of the jungle. Um, it's just, you know, it's thank you. You know, that kind of, uh, bravado. But one of the things that I, uh, I just love is recently you, by the way, folks, you may not know this. They didn't have a memorial. <laughs> <laughs> at the air force or anywhere for these pilots that uh risked their lives not all of them you know made it out they got killed but um they finally put a memorial up and max was invited to speak um max tell us about that because this is this is like uh, how many years since vietnam they finally built a memorial to you guys it, it is an interesting story um the Air Force Academy has a lot of airplanes uh, scattered around, static displays of airplanes uh, down at the uh, 
at the airport itself and, and then scattered around the campus. And uh, there wasn't a single helicopter anywhere on the base. And so I thought, well, this makes no sense at all. At least somebody should have a helicopter somewhere. So I started. Twelve years later, I finally got it done. And the reason I think uh, certainly the catalyst for getting it done was the chief of staff of the Air Force, the one right before the current chief, uh, was flying jets in Serbia, Syria, and he was shot down and he was uh, picked up, rescued by a Jolly Green. And so finally, I got the word to him that I had been trying to get a static display of a Jolly Green helicopter at the Air Force Academy and had been turned down by everybody with all these weak excuses. And he said, yeah, I think it's a good idea. <laughs> so we found uh, an old Jolly Green uh, stuck in the weeds, literally in the weeds, weeds growing up through the, the uh, body of the chopper and uh, at Carson Helicopters back east. And we uh, raised uh, and contributed uh, a million two to refurbish that thing and bring it to the academy. And we recently, as you mentioned, just a, a few weeks ago, had the dedication ceremony of that Jolly Green. Now, here's the interesting, totally coincidence, by the way. Uh, that particular Jolly Green CH3 helicopter, HH3, that we brought back and refurbished was actually one that I flew often when I was in uh, in Vietnam, Jolly Green 5-6. Wow. Wow. So uh, that made it particularly, I guess, uh, emotional for me to, to be able to be there and, and participate uh, and, and host that. That's that's almost eerie. That's like one of those God winks where they they found <laughs> it. Hey, uh, hey, uh, Max, you, you, do you recognize that number? <laughs> this is your <laughs> chopper. You know, uh, one of those moments where you go, wow. Um, but yeah, well, I, yeah go of, ahead. I'm sorry. One of the things that I said there that made it even more emotional for me, I suppose, I said, this guy behind me, this chopper, and his brothers not only brought home hundreds and hundreds of downed pilots out of North Vietnam, South Vietnam, and Laos, uh, and I happened to, to be blessed enough to bring home 10 myself over the period of time that I was there. But I said, that guy and his brothers brought me home over 200 times. And so there's another reason I particularly like seeing that, okay. that Jolly Green here at the Air Force Academy. The special attendee that we have here today is that guy right there. Welcome to the United States Air Force Academy, Jolly Green. I tell you what, it just, a wave of emotion. Uh, came over me. Uh, first of all, I'm so proud that it is here. We've tried for a long time to get a helicopter uh, on this base. I've looked at all of these fighters and bombers and everything, and uh, the Jolly Green organization, actually full air rescue organization, was the most decorated of all organizations in the Vietnam War. And yet we didn't even have a helicopter, much less a Jolly Green. But we had the best mission in the world. Our job was to bring these guys home because they only had a couple of other options. Death, the Hanoi Hilton, and me. So we, uh, we had a lot, of, uh, a lot of pride in what we were able to do. And there was nothing that felt better than having picked up a guy out of the jungle, 
take him back somewhere where his injuries could be treated and take him off that jolly green. Have a little champagne, a little whiskey, <laughs> and celebrate another great mission. I said, boy, they fixed you up pretty good, didn't they? Took you out of the weeds, no bullet holes, and uh, painted you. My goodness. Uh, welcome to the Air Force Academy Jolly Green 5-6, which was my call sign. Total coincidence, by the way, when we finally found a Jolly Green that we thought we could renovate, rehab, and uh, bring to the Academy. It was at Carson Helicopters on, back on the East Coast. So we did some digging, and by golly, I actually flew this baby and his brothers. They not only brought home guys that had been shot down, they brought me home over 200 times, and uh, I'm glad they did. It will, I hope, motivate and encourage and maybe even do a little teaching to the cadets here about resilience, persistence, bravery, professionalism, and getting good training and the lessons to be learned from the example set by Rescue, Jolly Greens, and, and others, I think uh, will help motivate, create a understanding by cadets and others uh, of what it takes when you're asked to uh, go the distance. I got so many people to thank that uh, uh, dollar-wise and, and then support, but mainly I want to thank all my brethren in the Jolly Greens and, and the Rescue all the different organizations for doing what they did and bringing guys home and making it possible that we were able to fly, fight, and win uh, in all that we did. Sort of like flying the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, brings you home. <laughs> Uh, now you were shot down twice. Uh, tell us what that was like. Cause you, you know, there's a moment of panic, I guess, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't know, but then you, your training kicks in. Is that correct? Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, when, uh, the second time I got shot down, uh, uh, we had just rescued a pilot, uh, out of North Vietnam on the side of a mountain. And it was a long story there, but we were bringing him home and, uh, we had taken some, some bullet holes and, uh, we had him on board and everything looked good. And we finally found a village that we hoped was safe that we could land in. And the crew chief calls me, uh, bear rescue and says, uh, Captain James, we have an oil leak. Now I can tell you that, uh, we have two types of oil leaks on a helicopter. One are the engines. And I had two of them, two jets. And the other is, uh, the, uh, transmission. <laughs> and the transmission makes those big fans on top of the yep. thing continue to turn, right? And so uh, I said, tell me, uh, sorry, tell me that it's an engine oil leak. He said, no, sir, it's the transmission. At that point, your description is close to absolute truth. My stomach just came up into my throat. I remembered exactly, just almost a choking sensation. And then, bang, it kicks in. What you just yeah. said. No. Courage is not the absence of fear. And so was I afraid at that point? Doggone right. And so um, uh, 
when you lose transmission oil and that van quits, when you lose the oil, you have two or three minutes before yeah. that bl- those blades may stop. So it became training. It became setting aside fear and just pressing on. And uh, we crashed that thing into the onto the street of a village in, in Laos. And it uh, it did finally uh, turn out to be friendly. <laughs> So that's kind of what it was like. And uh, we had a pilot, we had a crew, and we had this, you know, multi-million dollar airplane that uh, I was responsible for. And so the training just kicks in. You just do what you're trained to do. Yeah. And that's why they run drills all the time. (laughs) And you do do all those auto rotations and you cut the engine and then put it back on. This is so you don't panic. Fantastic. You're right. So let's switch gears. You're going to Stanford and I love the story you're studying <laughs> and, and you're, you're the, I'm not going to say the weirdo, but you're the guy who goes, instead of focusing on all these successful businesses, you focused on the ones that kept failing and failing and then finally turned it around. Let's, let's talk about what, what was it that you made you gravitate towards the businesses that failed? I know it's a great question and and one that uh, I'm not sure. I can glance back to those years, 1969, 70, and 71, and give you the the real answer. But what I think, uh, it was a bigger challenge. Uh, yeah. You, you, in the cases that they present for you to study, real world cases, um, they present what would you do in these horrible conditions? Well, that seemed a real challenge as opposed to deciding how Tom Watson at IBM was such a success. It was more interesting right. to me to say, well, okay, what would I do or what should I do? And then they often would bring in the real people uh, from yeah. that case. And you would you know, ask them and they would respond to, why did you do what you did? And it was often very different from what I had thought. And so you learn from their mistakes. Okay, and so I think that's why it just seemed like a a more interesting challenge uh, career field to get into uh, as a turnaround artist, if you will. Yeah, Um, I didn't think I would be a turnaround artist for myself. That wasn't planned. (laughs) I thought it would be somebody that would pay me a nice salary, but that it wasn't the way it went. I'm going to be so darn successful. I'm going to teach everyone else how to (laughs) turn it all around. Yeah, you know, and you you talked about this many times. Uh, one of your your first ventures was uh, in college. You actually started a business in college, and it failed right away. But it, you know, I, I'm assuming because of the lessons you sat back and you go, okay, why did this fail? It was really mostly outside reasons that this thing failed. So you talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, one of the principles that I talk about in the book is is it ain't always your fault. Right. When, when you fail. And this was a case of that. I uh, opened up uh, at least a large office space, cut it up into small cubicles and sold services as well as the space mm-hmm. uh, to young entrepreneurs who were uh, needed, a, 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 needed an office. Right. And uh, the landlord had some problems, uh, I suppose, financial, but nevertheless, I got a report from the executive secretary that I had hired to service these men and women that needed enough. And she said, uh, you know, um, we don't even have 
toilet paper. The landlord is not putting uh, all of the supplies that he owes us. And the lights have been off a couple of times. And so I go and find out that, you know, he's having trouble. And so I quit paying the rent. And uh, guess what? Uh, The tenants started leaving, right? Because they didn't have the supplies that they needed. And uh, so I get sued by the landlord for not paying the rent. So I go to an attorney. And I said, look, here's my contract. And he said, yep, you're absolutely right. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to pay the rent. But Max, by the time you pay me for the legal services and court costs and all of that, it would be cheaper if you just settled with him, pay the back rent and move on. Right. So the first lesson I learned as an entrepreneur was that if you if you think you might need legal services, maybe you should get an attorney to be a partner and then he won't charge you. And so I have done that many, many times. And my current attorney has been with me, I don't know, 25, 30 years. Look at you saving money right out of the gate. <laughs> yeah. Well, Crack trying off. to survive. <laughs> well, th- this cracks me up because um, you know about the recent Twitter debacle when Elon Musk bought it out. And sure. I- I'm reading all these uh, business magazines complaining about Elon Musk and how cruel he was. And I'm sitting there going, are you kidding me? This is the <laughs> first thing you do. You cut the fat who pays $17 million to, you know, some executive when you're losing $2 million a day. I mean, this nonsense that I hear and you and I both have kind of learned it by cutting our eye teeth um, really in the trenches every single day. Um sure. Is there a failure that you really, really regretted? Was there one of those that you just went, ah, damn, I wish that had worked out? Well, as you know, because you've read my book and studied it, uh, there were tons and tons of failures. Right. And uh, fortunately, I learned something from every failure. I think that you learn more from failing than you do from your successes. But yeah, I suppose there was. Uh, One is humorous. Uh, I'll tell it real quickly, and then I'll tell you what the really big one was. Um, so I was broke, uh, never filed bankruptcy, you know, <laughs> yeah. hopefully never will. But I never filed bankruptcy. I always found a way to salvage something and pay people and move on. But uh, I was really broke. And I had been in network marketing, multi-level marketing, and had some successes in the nutritional field. And uh, they didn't teach that distribution system at Stanford, by the way, but I figured it out a little bit and did well. Anyway, uh, so a guy called me that I had known and he said, Max, uh, there's a new dis- uh, network marketing company. And he said, I think you might be interested in it. And I said, well, probably not. But he said, OK, let me ask you a couple of questions. He said, do you have a dog? I said, yeah. He said, do you feed your dog? I said, Yeah. Do you know anybody else that has a dog? I said, yeah. He said, they probably feed their dog too, right? Yeah. And they probably, and he said, well, there's a new company out with dog food and it's really great. And uh, we're going to sell it in network marketing. So he said, uh, I'll send you some samples uh, of the dog food. And mm-hmm. then uh, I'd like you to come to a session where we're going to make a presentation on, on the dog food. And I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll show up. So he shows up at my house and I said, uh, so where's the products? I, I never got my products. And he said, well, it's in the trunk of my car. So I go down in his car and then open up the trunk and there's about three sacks, 25 pound sacks of dog food. And I said, you're 
kidding. It doesn't come in a little box and everything. No, no, no. 25. And I said, okay, well, I'll go with you. And he and I said, where, what hotel are we going to? And he said, no, no, no. Uh, my veterinarian tells me about this couple that has two or three dogs and think they might be interested in becoming a distributor. So I said, we're going to somebody's house. He said, yes. Fine. So I load up in his car and off we go. We drive into this not great neighborhood, you know, with the front yards all fenced off and the yeah. iron gates on the door and uh, dogs. There must be four or five dogs barking and beware of dogs, dogs biting on. So finally, we get calmed down and we go inside and we make our presentation. And it's a total flop. The people don't believe us. They don't think the nutritional supplement is that good. And they don't believe anything that they can make any money. Right. So we leave and I go back and the guy said, well, we didn't do too well there. But he said, I've got the product on the way to your house. And I said, I'm not sure I want it. So I, doorbell rings one morning. I go down and this guy and says, I have your a package product for you. I said, well, just bring it up here to the to the house. He said, well, no, it's in your driveway. And it's fine. I'll come down and move it into the garage. I go down and there's 25 sacks on a pallet of this dog. <laughs> I move it into the garage, and the next morning there are squirrels and skunks, dogs, cats. There are more animals in my front yard trying to get in the It smelled like, oh, that was a bad failure, okay? <laughs> I think that was the lowest point in my entire career was me trying to sell dog food, okay, in 25-pound sacks in network marketing. So it sounds like his problem, he made it y your problem. <laughs> exactly. Well, I uh, I raised enough cane that uh, they came and picked up the dog food. And stuff. Good. It took a while to get the smell out of my garage, but nevertheless. Oh, but the real failure, and, and I'll try to be brief, which you know I have trouble with. But at any rate, the real failure um, was things were going great about 2005 some, or uh, back the early uh, times. And I bought seven Remax franchise territories. Mm, and yeah. I love the concept. We won't go into that, but it was working really well. I opened all these offices. I leased offices. I leased equipment. I leased, 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 leased. And guess what happened? A little thing called a recession. Oh, and it was yeah. like, what if I gave a party and nobody came? And so wow. suddenly I am upside down. I'm trying to settle the leases. I'm trying to give the equipment back. And uh, my phone is ringing off the hook every day from creditors. Yeah. Uh, and I learned just how corrupt, by the way, the, the credit debt collectors can be. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was it. I had to sell my house, which was my dream home that I had built. Uh, in Northern California, and I moved to Napa, California, and rented a house from two wonderful elderly ladies who didn't raise a lot of trouble with me when I couldn't pay the rent. Oh. My wife at that time, her job was selling weightlifters gloves out of a Quonset hut <laughs> to uh, gyms. So we did what we had to do and, and survived. That was probably the biggest, to lose your dream home, to have to move out of your house, yeah. to face those creditors. Uh, that was a low point, I think, the biggest failure in my career. Not the funniest, but the biggest. Yeah. You know, I, I know Dave Lineker, uh, who founded Remax. Sure. And yeah. he tells this story uh, at that time where um, he got married. 
uh-huh. and found out the the company was facing bankruptcy. And I think it was around that time. And he basically was like, hey, honey, right after the honeymoon, I have to go back out on the road and shut down offices and promote and get investors. And um, this is the moment when entrepreneurs really show their true grit, their true colors. Um, you, you know, it's okay to to, okay, I failed, go lick your wounds and then you get back up and, you know, maybe a year or two later you go, I have another great business idea. Boom. And you get back in the saddle. Uh, I guess we're, we're saying, and that is the nature of being a, a real entrepreneur. A real entrepreneur is a lifetime commitment to this. Wouldn't you say that's right, Max? Absolutely. In fact, I think I may have shared this with you before, but I have a cartoon and it's uh, a night the old time and night. And he's got on all of his armor and his helmet with the hood down and he's got his lance and uh, the lance is broken off. And the caption says, some days the dragon wins. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's true. You know, you're, not, true. you're not going to win them all. And if you've learned, as I did from all of those, uh, next time you probably hopefully won't make the same mistakes. Uh, and you crawl up that mountain and it's tough, but it's fun yeah. crawling up the mountain and falling down the mountain is really painful. I mean, it's just <laughs> not fun at all. <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. Not at but all. But if you're going to climb back up a mountain, what you have to realize is you've gone down in the valley and that's important. And now you crawl up to the next peak. So peak to peak. Yeah. Problem with wisdom is you don't learn it until you go through stuff. <laughs> yeah, experience is a really good teacher, and failure is one of those experiences that probably is the best teacher of all. It sure is. Uh, you know, I look back at my own career and yeah. taking a company public and all that. That the, I mean, it it felt like hell at the beginning because they're digging in and we're expanding so fast. You you know that feeling of hiring that first employee. You're petrified, but at the same time, you're okay. Let's hope these next three sales, you know, keep, and then we get stable. But um, I look back, I wish I hadn't taken it public quite as early as I did. So those are the kind of things you look back and you go, okay. So let's let's talk about this. And I love this story. Um, you started a American Kiosk Management. And you, how did you do that? I mean, what made you come up with the idea of, hey, kiosks here in the, the inline part of the, the shopping mall where people are walking? What, what prompted that idea? Yeah, well, it wasn't an original idea of mine, but uh, I had gone through uh, a difficult period. And my attorney, who I've mentioned before, my attorney called and he said, Max, there's a company down in San Diego that's looking for a CEO. I think you should apply. And I said, Jim, I mean, I'm not looking for a job. <laughs> you know, entrepreneurs rather not work right. for somebody else most of the time. And he said, well, uh, I think you should go down and talk to him anyway. Well, I, what he really was worried about, was I going to be able to pay his legal bill? <laughs> okay. Right. And so I went down there and it was a company uh, in a nutritional supplement industry. And they had broken a cardinal rule about network marketing. They were allowing their distributors to sell the product at retail, which is a cardinal sin because 
normal distributors don't want to compete with a retail store. And uh, I went through the discussions with them. They said, why don't you go look and, and see? This is a really good deal. Well, it was unbelievable almost. But I checked out five of them, and I had a friend, a retired Army general, uh, and uh, he checked out another five. And they were all making a ton of money. I mean, netting like 10000 a month. Yeah. So they were selling the product at retail on these carts and kiosks, which I thought, this is the stupidest idea I've ever heard in my life. That is, I mean, you know, yeah. it can't be a big business. Well, it turned out that uh, he and I uh, did about, I think we had about 40-something of them. And uh, we were making over $10,000 a month per location. So that's how I got into the kiosk business. That business, uh, the the parent company, not the distributorships, but the parent company, uh, we found out was cutting some corners that they should not cut as it related to their personal taxes. And so the company was sold to a big pharmaceutical company that decided they would just stick with retail, not with these silly carts and kiosks. It wasn't very silly to me. I mean, that's a lot of money. That is. So that's how I got into it. And while I was having great success with that company, I thought, this is a great idea. This is a great system. There's got to be other products besides this nutritional supplement that I could do the same thing with. And so I went to a company called Guthy Ranker, the infomercial kings. Yeah. And I tried to convince them to let me sell some of their products that they were only selling on air, uh, online. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how I expanded into uh, American kiosk management. And as you know, and as you have said in the intro, it was very successful. Yeah. Now let's talk about meeting. And she wasn't your wife at the time, but Linda <laughs> Johansson uh, and later became Linda Johansson James. But she walked in at this mall late at night, uh, and y- you knew you were in trouble, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She was uh, a very attractive and very bright, and I was busy. I was sitting on the floor wiring up a computer uh, to open a new uh, location in Arizona, and uh, she said, "I'm here for an interview." And I had tried my best not to have this interview. But a friend of hers insisted that she was the right person for the job that I had available. And uh, she said, so uh, uh, are we going to interview? And I said, oh, just help those people decorate the, the uh, kiosk over there. I, I, I'm busy right now. Right. So you can't uh, open, uh, set up a new kiosk until the mall closes. So it was 10, 11 o'clock at night. I think we finished about two o'clock or something. and. Uh, Kiosk was probably merchandise better than any I'd ever had. She really had talent and she and the staff were getting along great. So she said, uh, uh, okay, so what time tomorrow do you want to meet to, to interview? And I said, tomorrow, I got work to do tomorrow. We'll do it now. So being a big spender, we went over to Denny's <laughs> and, uh, and had the interview. And finally I said, okay, I, I think you can do it. You seem like you're aggressive and, and talented and, good sales. So uh, you got the job. And she said, oh, great. And so the next morning around six o'clock or probably seven o'clock, uh, I was in her hotel lobby where she was staying. And I called the room and I said, where are you? 
I hired you last night. We got work to do today. She called her friend and said, this guy's crazy. I didn't come to work. So anyway, that was the introduction. And uh, uh, five years later or something, we made it a serious partnership and, and we got married. <laughs> yeah. And you, you were expanding uh, like gangbusters because I know um, every, every company sort of has the master brain behind it and then sort of the 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 rainmaker behind it. So I think you two made such a great partnership and you expanded like, I think it was 35 carts in six months. Uh, was well, the the, beginning. Yeah. Uh, Linda was talented at selecting employees for our kiosk. She was talented at organizing and building layers of management. And uh, there was a period where she opened uh, a new location every other day. Wow. So there's the organization skill that she brought to the table. And uh, I think we had six or eight or something when she came on board and we ended up, as you have reported, with 400 manned and 800 automated before we sold yeah. to Nestle. It, it's a fantastic story, but you know, a lot of people, uh, especially in this day and age, they sort of like, I'm going to do it online and I'm going to make a million bucks. And you guys worked tenaciously um, digging in. And I, I love this. <laughs> your philosophy is one of the best I've heard. And it's it's down and dirty. It's like, go like hell, then stop and clean up the mess. <laughs> then yeah. go like hell, stop and clean up the mess. Talk about that because you guys over what, 15 year period did like expanded to 1.8 billion over that time period. Right. Right. Let's talk about that. Go like hell. <laughs> pause, then clean up, then go like hell some more. Yeah. Well, uh, we figured out some of the important things in the go like hell phrase. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, hire the right people. Uh, and as you know, one of Linda's deals is hire for character and train for skill, hire right. for character, train for skill. So we brought on people that we could leave pretty quickly uh, to their own devices to run that uh, location, and we could concentrate on that. Secondly, we uh, set up a training program. We actually had AKM University, where mm -hmm. we would train people uh, both over the phone and conferences, bringing them into the corporate office. Um, but you don't learn everything immediately. A lot of this has to do with the experience, learning how to deal with a customer and a particular product line. And so we would, we'd get all these things open and we'd pull everybody together and new training program is this, that, and the other, clean it up, rest, stay home for a while, you know, and, and uh, then go back out. And as Harvey McKay says, walk the manufacturing floor to find right. out what was really going on. Out there. Now I'm going to ask you this. And, okay. and I think a big part of your success was choosing uh, the right products like proactive that is an emotional buy. And the way you trained your people was brilliant. You trained them not to run up and go, hey, this product's great. You, they would just say hello. And then kind of like, have you, have you heard about proactive? Let them touch the product, things like that. That is brilliant. Do you, do you think that is the biggest part of your success? Satisfying the customer before they are a customer but our, our potential, and then making sure you do the follow-up to answer any questions and continue to assist them is critical in any uh, consumer product line. 
um, we did that well. And you're right. We we would follow up with emails. Uh, how's the product working for you? Um, do you need any more now? Et cetera, et cetera. So when you give, it comes back 10 times. And what we were doing here was helping people with immediate problems. I remember one story, we had a guy that came up and after he had used the product for quite a while, and he came up with me and he thanked us profusely. And he said, you know, I didn't get a date until I was 23 years old because of my uh, skin condition. And you've solved all of that problem. And we had kids wow. whose lives were turned around. So uh, it was an emotional sale. And we made sure that we treated the customer by asking them, do you have oily skin? Do you have dry skin? Asking all the questions. And these questions then would help us respond positively to the need of the customer. So customer service upfront was critically important. None of this running down the hall, chasing you, saying, you know, uh, smell this or taste this or whatever. No, we yeah. didn't do that. Yeah, I've seen the results. Your training was second to none. Um, from what I understand, you, you would train your proactive uh, cart, you know, salespeople so well the scientists at proactive were impressed you you had to give a presentation when nestle bought bought uh you know the cards and everything and they said the scientists came up afterwards and they said you guys talk about ingredients we forgot were in there <laughs> you know yeah uh, and I, I i've been so impressed with that i've only seen this level of training in the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical industry um, where they go through every detail, what you're going to expect from this product, what's in this product that makes it work. And um, you're so right. You know, you you hire for character because in this day and age, and we've talked about this, <laughs> it's hard to find self-starters. I, uh, I agree. And yeah. one has to ask why. What happened to all the folks that self-starters and I, social media is part of both the problem and the solution, quite honestly. Uh, but also, where is that hunger uh, that you and I uh, yeah. have known in, in our young lives? Where yeah. is that hunger to succeed and to help others? Yeah. And uh, so recruiting is is critical, particularly if you're not going to be there to manage yourself. Yeah. I've found that a lot of these uh, big chains like Target and uh, Walmart, I hear horror stories from the employees on the, the front lines where they claim they train them and they claim they love them, but the turnover is so high. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking close to 70% in some retail areas. And you have managed to have a lot of your employees stay with you for 15, 17 years. This is unheard of in retail. What, what's the secret, Max? Well, my secret is Linda, my wife. She is so <laughs> she is so good. By the way, that's an important business deal. You know, you better hire the right people that have skills that you don't. Yes. And uh, to fill the gaps that, that you have. And so she is such a tremendous leader. Uh, everybody likes her. And they yeah. did. She she just built a personality culture 
almost that uh, people were just so loyal to her. The first person that she ever hired stayed for 14 years sitting or standing on a, at a kiosk um, and for the whole career, her whole career. I mean, yeah. it's just phenomenal. Why would somebody stay with, you know, that long? Let me tell you something. No one has worked for me for that length of time. Okay. <laughs> I, just, I don't have that same type of leadership skill that Linda has. Right. And so uh, it's true. Our turnover was very low. And by the way, that all floats to the bottom line in business. If you don't have to spend money hiring, if you don't have to spend money retraining and training, and then training as you go along, it saves a huge amount of money that goes to the bottom line. So hanging on to good employees is critical. And the other thing, hire for character, train for skill. We talked about that. Cut your losses early. Oh, don't, yeah. Don't think that you're going to be able to save everybody and <laughs> that you're going to keep losers on. Cut your losses early. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. Uh, yeah, it's rough finding good people. But uh, you've done a good job. You've done a great job, Max. Hey, everybody, reach out and pick up Max's book. I got to tell you, this is a phenomenal read. The harder I fall, the higher I bounce. Life Lessons from the Entrepreneur, dubbed the King of Kiosks by Fortune Magazine. There you see Max's smiling face there on the cover. <laughs> it's a phenomenal read because it isn't just, you know, the business 101. It's more of, a memoir and then the lessons that came from it. And it's, it's funny. It's cathartic. It can be sad in moments. You see the struggle, you know, the frustration. Uh, if you're an entrepreneur, business owner, even an executive or a salesperson, this is a masterclass right here in this book. So please pick it up. And also you can go to his website, maxjamesauthor.com, maxjamesauthor.com, one word. Uh, and uh, also He's, he's on, uh, you're on all the social media sites, Instagram, Facebook, uh, and uh, reach out to him. Uh, and he's always there with a word of advice. Now we're going to switch gears, Max. I like to do a little bit of a lightning round where I ask some uh, deeper dive questions. So we get to know you better. Uh, and the first question I want to ask you probably is, is there something about you that's quirky or funny that you do that none of us know about? Quirky. I've been called quirky before. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I suppose so. Um, part of it comes with experience and aging, as you so kindly mentioned in the beginning. I'm a lot older than you. I, you're uh, this you're is, welcome. You're quite welcome. <laughs> this is the 81st <laughs> year on the planet. And I find that I look back a lot. And what I gained from looking back, I believe, is the opportunity to share experiences with other people. One of the reasons I wrote the book, uh, as you know, uh, was not necessarily for money and profit at my age, but right. was to help others. And Jack Canfield, uh, whom you're very familiar with, Chicken Soup for the Soul, said, Max, this isn't really just for entrepreneurs. There's so many life lessons in these humorous stories that you tell that uh, there are a lot of people that should read it. Yeah. You do have a good sense of humor. I, I like when you send some things over sometimes I crack up. Uh, my next question is, uh, 
I know you and your wife are big fans of giving back, but do you want to talk about, um, you know, the, the intensity of giving back, why you do it and, and what you love to do? Yeah, well, the best-selling book of all times translated into more languages than any other book ever written uh, says in one place, if you give, it comes back 10 times. And yes. it says in another place that if you give, it comes back a hundredfold. Uh, I believe that. I, yeah. I think that's an absolute dictum. And it, this isn't a maybe. I mean, it's just a truism, an axiom. Yeah. And so uh, I tried to give back all along. But when you got enough that you're comfortable, it is so great to be able to help others. Uh, it just feels good. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if you want to look at it from a selfish point of view, who benefits the most? Maybe it's me. I'm just having the, and I'm so thankful uh, yeah. that I have the the opportunity to do so. And there was a reason my roommate at the academy lost a child to uh, cancer when she was seven years old. And uh, I thought Paul Newman started a deal called uh, Hole in the Wall Camps for kids that were seriously ill and terminally ill. And I took Newman's idea and developed Camp Soaring Eagle. And we were able to serve 7,000 kids that were terminally ill or, or chronically ill. Wow. It doesn't get yeah. any better than to see those kids smile and have a good time. And then character is probably, I know you know, and maybe your audience knows, is really important to me. And so I was able to, uh, I think, make some serious accomplishments by building the Center for Character and Leadership Development at the Air Force Academy and starting a peer-reviewed journal. That also, I think, is going to help build this nation yeah. uh, by teaching cadets and exposing them to character lessons. That's, that's fantastic. Why. Thank you, Max. That, that's fantastic to know. Uh, and my last question is, okay. what, what do you feel is the most important legacy you want to leave behind? The sense that philanthropy is a great goal to strive for uh, and to demonstrate it with something that is going to have a lifetime benefit uh, to others after I've left this planet. And I think the Center for Character and Leadership Development at the Air Force Academy, uh, my hope is that it will become an international icon and magnet that we can share what we learn from researching development of character and development of leadership that we can share with all the universities in the world, with the Air Force uh, uh, universities, uh, and with the world, hopefully, at some point in time. Fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, reach out to Max. Uh, please pick up his book. You're going to learn a lot from this. And it's also an audio. So you don't, uh, if you're a busy person, you want to listen in your car, get it on Audible. Uh, buy the hardback. It's fantastic. And uh, Max, I just want to thank you for being a guest here on Awakened Nation. Thank you, my friend. Always a pleasure to be with you, Brad. So uh, thank you very much. You're welcome, Max. Hey, everybody, tune in next week as we have another extraordinary guest here on Awakened Nation signing off. Have a good one, my friends. Thank you so much for being a big part of the Awakened Nation movement. This is how you can help me and our extraordinary guests. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please share it out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
and let's grow this movement by word of mouth. Our success will be because of you. Thank you and see you next week.